Come on. Well, we're in week six now of our series, The Seven Churches. And not to be too confusing for you guys, there's eight parts to our series, The Seven Churches. We're in week six. We started with an introduction. And, but we've basically been moving through um, the start of the book of Revelation, which is really just this beautiful story of how no matter what comes against you, Jesus is still in charge. And we've been specifically moving through the seven churches. So we started with an introduction about how Revelation is about Jesus being in charge. And then we moved to the church in Ephesus, which was the church that was hardworking but loveless. Talked about Smyrna, the church that was persecuted but strong. We've talked about uh, Pergamum, the church that was compromised. Thyatira, the church that, that was apostate. They had given in to the pagan rituals of the day. And, and, and this week, I have the privilege of, of sharing to you the letter to the church of Sardis. And I wish I could say this was one of my favorite letters to read, but this really isn't a letter that you want to read if you need to pick me up. The letter to the church in Sardis, it says, Revelations 3, verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who has the seven star, spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains that is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. I know that's a great great start to a letter. Uh, Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not sold their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I'll confess your name before my father and before his angels. Let everyone who has an ear listen to what the church or what the spirit is saying to the churches. Sardis. The church that thought it was alive, but really was dead. So I want to talk to you this morning on the subject of the whole truth. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray, Lord, that as we receive your word, Lord, that we believe your word is alive and active. And God, I just pray that you will move in all of our hearts, Lord. Reveal to us the things that you're calling us to. Transform us as we, as we read your word, as we dive into your word, God, that none of us will leave here uh, the same, but that we'll all leave transformed. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. The whole truth. Come on, how many of you are like me and have ever had a problem with telling the whole truth? Anybody? Anybody? This is really a test. How many of you are honest enough to admit that you were liars at one point in your life? Um, You know, if I'm honest, uh, for a large portion of my life, I uh, had an issue with telling the truth. And it wasn't so much an issue of trying to, like, blatantly lie or fabricate stories or anything like that. But it, it was usually an issue with telling the whole truth. Because I figured out at some age, I don't know how old I was, I figured out that a lie is way more convincing if it's seated in the truth. If 60% is true and 40% is false, it's 
way easier to get away with it. And, and so growing up, I, I, I had uh, this habit of, this pattern of telling half-truths. And, and I don't know about you, but I've always, to this day, I've struggled with telling the truth in certain situations because often telling the truth means hurting someone else or, you know, getting in trouble. And, and, and I've thought my, caught myself thinking, like, well, sometimes it's just, not, it's just better not to tell the whole truth. Sometimes it's better just to tell a half-truth. It'll be safer for me. It'll be safer for others. I'll look better. And, and really, it's just, you know, an attempt to protect ourselves or to look good in front of others. And, and as I was prepping for this message, I was thinking back, and I remembered this time when... I was, before I came to Gateway and, and started serving as a youth leader here, uh, back when I was uh, a youth leader in a church in Ontario, and, and I had the privilege of leading, uh, being a part of our junior high team, working with all of our junior highs. Uh, I was just a high school student at the time, and, and as a part of this, I was able to be a small group leader, and I led a group of these young kids, like grades six to eight. I don't remember exactly what age they were, but I had this group of kids that I just, I just loved because there's something so special about being able to like, make an impact on a kid's life, especially one who's struggling. And, and I remember there was one kid in my group who, well, he was known as a bit of a wild child um, to the point that the first conference we went to with him, he kept me up all night long because he couldn't fall asleep. So he thought, I'm just going to play soccer in the hotel room. Thank you, kid. It was great. Um, but, but he had a lot of energy, was a bit of a wild kid. Uh, and, but as difficult as he was, I loved that kid. I loved that kid. And, and I wanted what was best for him. But there was one thing that really, really bothered me about him. And that's that no matter what story he told me, I always knew it was never fully true. Always. 100% of the time, there was a guarantee, no matter what story you told me, it was always partly a lie. And usually it was like, it was absurd usually. It was like 60% of the time, it was like, okay, yeah, that's a reasonable story. That is completely possible. And then 40% was like, dude, that has never happened to anyone in the history of the world. Like, I don't know where you're coming up with this stuff, but that is not possible. And, and I remember one time he actually told me, um, told me the story of how he'd gone go-karting. And, and he, he was like, oh yeah, it was so much fun. And it was great. And I didn't win any races. I'm like, oh yeah, that's great. That's, that's fun. And, and then he, he went on and he told me how um, he managed to flip the go-kart. I was like, you flipped the go-kart? How are you alive? Oh, well, it had a roll cage. Since when do go-karts have a roll cage? Oh, well, these ones did. And I did a flip, and the people were like, whoa, we've never seen that happen before. And then I went over jumps. I'm like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Partly true, he went go-karting. And then there was all this junk that he just tagged on to, to look the cool. And, and I mean, I couldn't really fault him for lying to me because... I was just as guilty as him at, at, at lying. And um, at his age and even older than him, I, I did the same thing. But it was just something so aggravating, knowing that no matter what story he told me, it was never fully true. And he never told me the whole truth. And you see, the problem with never telling the whole truth is, is that unlike when you tell un outright lies, where down the road you'll remember and be like, oh, that was a stupid lie, That's, but that was completely false. When you start to tell part truths, 
it's much harder to remember down the road what is actually true. Much harder 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years later to remember what actually happened because the lie can be so much easier to remember. And, and often in those moments when you've been telling yourself a partial truth that you've come to believe, the only way to break the hold of that lie is an encounter with the whole truth. You know, the letter to the church in Sardis really isn't one that leaves you with warm, squishy feelings. You know, it's not like Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's great. Yay. Cast, or do not be worried about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving, give your requests to God. Great. If I'm anxious, I'm going to read that verse. But I, I don't think I've ever turned to Revelation 3 in a moment of distress and read the letter to the church of Sardis and thought, Oh, that was great. That's just what I needed to hear today. Um, and you know, throughout most of the letters we've read so far, we've, uh, there's, they've followed this pattern of usually Jesus starts with an introduction, hey, I'm Jesus, and then he follows it up with an encouragement, you guys are doing well here, before he moves on to a rebuke where it's like, hey, fix this. And the only uh, time that it hasn't happened so far is in the letters to the church in Smyrna where Jesus is just like, guys, keep doing what you're doing. Just keep going. You, you got this. But, but with Sardis, with Sardis, what we find is the first letter where Jesus doesn't have anything positive to say right off the bat. The first letter that Jesus starts with a rebuke. And like I said when, when we were talking about Smyrna a couple weeks ago, I think it's really easy for us to read this letter and actually miss the whole truth, to actually miss what Jesus is trying to say. So he starts it off with, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which I know the seven spirits of God and seven stars, that can sound a little bit strange, but seven spirits of God, if you remember Dan's introduction many, many weeks ago, um, seven spirits of God are a reference to the characteristics of God, the six characteristics characteristics of God we find in Isaiah along with the Holy Spirit. That's the seven spirits Jesus is saying here. Hey, I am God. I am with God. I have the authority of God. And then the seven stars, according to Revelations 1.20, are referenced to the messengers, to the angels of the seven churches. So really what we see here right at the start is Jesus saying, hey, guys, church, this is Jesus writing. I'm God. I'm with God. And I have authority over the churches. Not a bad introduction, right? If you got a letter like that, it's not bad. It's not a bad way to start a letter. But, but then Jesus follows it up with, I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. You know, I don't know about you, but if I got a letter from Jesus addressed to Gateway and started with, hey, this is Jesus writing, I'd be like, oh, okay, this is weird. Interesting, cool, great. You think you are alive, but you are dead. Whoa. Whoa. It's a pretty harsh rebuke. It's a pretty harsh statement. And you think you're alive, but you are dead. And if you do not wake up, 
I'll come like a thief. And, and you know, it's easy for us with people who have the whole New Testament, and we can read through all of the New Testament. It's easy for us to look at this verse and, and see it and recognize the thief in the night reference, which is also referred to in, in Matthew 24. It's referred to in 1 Thessalonians 5. We see it in 2 Peter 3 as well. And, and we, it's easy for us to look at that and immediately recognize this is a warning. This is a warning of impending judgment, judgment that will be coming against the church if they don't repent. But for the church of Sardis, who likely had never read the letters of the, the letter of Paul to, to the Thessalonica church, or the, to the church in Thessalonica, likely had never read the letter of Peter, probably had, I don't even think the Gospel of Matthew was written at that point. Um, to the church in Sardis, this this, this part of the message that we can recognize would get lost on them. But for them, actually, this message had a much deeper meaning than we would ever realize. It's something that is actually directly ripped out of their history, something that Jesus took from their past, something they would have known about. You see, 7th century B.C., Sardis is the capital of the Lydian Empire. I'm sorry, if you don't like history, you're not going to like this message. Because um, there's a bunch of history in here because this is all fascinating. But 7th century AD, Sardis is the, emp- er, the, the capital of the Lydian Empire. And if you've never heard of the Lydian Empire, I was in the same boat until about three, four weeks ago when I started researching my last message to the church in Smyrna. And I realized, oh, this empire is actually pretty cool. They're known as the empire that invented coins pretty sweet deal. Um, but Sardis is the capital of the Lydian Empire, and, and Sardis really had two things going for it. Number one, it had a citadel perched atop these high cliffs overlooking the city that was widely considered by ancient historians to be the strongest place on earth. Walls were 20 feet thick, atop these high cliffs that people thought were impossible to climb, had like one or, one or two entrances into the city, easily defendable, very, very strong. So that's the first thing. Sardis was strong. And the second thing that they had going for them was that they were rich. They were very rich. The city of Sardis was based in this fertile basin. They had a lot of farming. They were near some of these forests that they could cut down and use for lumber. Um, they had exports of dyes and carpets. But most importantly, running through the center of the city was a river known as the Pactolus River, which if you know the legend of King Midas, where we get the term Midas touched from, that was the, le- uh, the legend says that that was the river that King Midas washed himself in to remove himself of the curse that anything he touched turned to gold. So the legend had it that the river got filled with gold because of King Midas. And at this time in Sardis' history, the, le- the river was overflowing with a mineral known as electrum. Which if you've never heard of that, it's basically a composition of gold and silver mixed together. So two very valuable metals mixed together to make a slightly less val- valuable metal. And so Sardis is strong and Sardis is rich until 560 BC under the reign of King Croesus, the metallurgists of Sardis figure out how to separate the silver from the gold and suddenly they go from being the first people to make coins at all to being the only people in the world who can fabricate pure coins. Pure silver, pure gold, and suddenly their coins go from being like, oh, you guys were first, that's kind of cool, but we have our own stuff now, to being, your coins are worth way more than anything else. 
So their value, their riches grow astronomically to the point that King Croesus actually is the one who built uh, the second temple of Artemis in Ephesus, which was later destroyed and rebuilt to become one of the, one of the wonders of the world. But, but all this is to say that Sardis is strong and they are rich and until King Croesus decides, hey, I'm going to put this money and this power to work and I'm going to pick a fight with King Darius of Persia. So he goes to war against the Persian Empire. And they fight a battle, and it's inconclusive. And both sides retreat to lick their wounds, and winter is coming. So following the tradition of the day, King Croesus disbands his army and expects Persia to do the same. But King Darius was a little bit shifty and crafty and untrustworthy. And he hears that King Croesus has disbanded his army, that the Lydian army is gone. And he marches his army hundreds of miles from the border of Lydia to the capital of Sardis before the Lydians know he's coming. Like a thief in the night, he approached their city without them knowing. And then he besieges the city, and the city's strong. It's fortified. It's strong. And they withstand many, many assaults until finally, one night, a Persian soldier sees a Lydian soldier who is happening to walk along this unguarded portion of wall. And this wall, portion of the wall was atop these really high cliffs that were considered to be impossible to climb. And this Persian soldier watches this Lydian soldier. He loses his helmet over the wall. And he watches as the Lydian helmet goes bouncing all the way down the cliff. He's like, huh, interesting. And then he watches the Lydian soldier climb down the wall, climb down a secret path along the cliff, grab his helmet, and climb back up. So the next day... The Persian army comes, they climb the cliff, they climb over the unguarded portion of the wall. Of the wall. Sardis was thought they were defended on that side. They climb that, that portion of the wall, they get into the city, they open the gates, they capture the city. So Sardis fell. In 544 BC, Sardis fell to the Persian Empire, not because they weren't strong, and not because they weren't rich, but because they weren't watching. And that's not the first time that they actually fell in the same way. Because later on, in I believe it was like 215 BC, the city of Sardis is kind of on its own after the fall of Alexander the Great. And suddenly the Seleucid Empire comes in. They march up to the gates. And similar to Persia, nobody knows they're coming. And then similar to Persia, they find the secret path. They climb an unguarded portion of the wall. They break into the city and they capture it. You know, you think people would have learned from the first time. But... Twice it fell. And then, and then the third time in 17 AD, the city of Sardis had been experiencing these minor tremors for months. And it was these warnings of a big earthquake that was about to unleash, and they just ignored it. Until one night in 17 AD, in the middle of the night when everyone was asleep, the earthquake hit and flattened the entire city. And all this is to say that in this moment when Jesus says, I will come like a thief in the night. He's not just making a statement about or tying into other scripture. He's making a statement that is tying directly into their history. Not once, not twice, but three times the city had fallen because they hadn't been paying attention. And Jesus is warning his church, church, if you do not wake up, if you do not pay attention, just like your city fell and just like your city was judged because they weren't watching, so you too will be judged. But you know, 
all that really begs the question, why is Jesus making such a big deal about the church in Sardis? Why is he telling them to say, or why is he saying to them, you have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you received. Why is Jesus making such a big deal for the, Sardis, the, the believers in Sardis? And for that, we have to continue actually on through history. So as we've talked about already, 700 BC, Sardis is the capital of the Lydian Empire. It's an important empire. They're rich. They're powerful. Until in 544 BC, they are captured by Persia, an empire from the east. And they remain under Persia as the capital of one of the local provinces in Persia. They remain as the, the big bastion, the big citadel guarding the end of the Persian royal, royal road until 200 later, years later in 344 BC, they surrender to Alexander the Great of the Macedonian Empire, an empire from the west. This is all important. And they remain under Alexander the Great until the fall of his empire and his death, at which point um, they kind of float around under a couple of different warlords until finally the Seleucid Empire rises out of the, the, death, the grave of Alexander the Great and forms and comes and they conquer Sardis in 215 BC, empire from the east, at which point Sardis becomes the powerful western capital of the Seleucid Empire. And it remains that way until the Seleucids fall. They become part of the kingdom of Pergamum for a couple years uh, until King Attalus III in, um, in 133 BC, he bequeaths his kingdom to the Roman Empire, giving the entire thing over to them because he's tired of ruling on his own. Um, and, and so basically, I know, why, why is this important? Well, basically, Sardis, history of Sardis is they started as their own empire. They're conquered by Persia from the east, Macedonia from the west, the Seleucids from the east, and finally, Rome from the west. And all of this is really just to give a context of the makeup of the city. That this, at this time, Sardis was a mismatch of many different cultures. Persian, Greek, Seleucid, and Roman. They had many different cultures, build, cultural buildings, different cultures ingrained, different cultures, languages, and, and religions to the point that there's languages that archaeologists have found in Sardis that they don't even know where they come from. They don't even recognize the language because there's so, much different, so many different cultures in Sardis. And, and the city, they had gone through a lot. They've been an important city to many different empires. And what had happened was that had all shaped the city and it made it into the city that was known as being highly multi-ethnic and very, very accepting of everything. Which, according to scholars, means that at the time of this letter's writing, the city of Sardis was known for a culture that we get, or we we call a get-along culture. Which means that basically everyone in the city was just trying to get along. Didn't matter if you're Roman, Greek, Lydian, Persian, Christian, Jew. Didn't matter what you believed. We just tried to get along to the point that, that the biggest Jewish synagogue outside of Israel was actually built in Sardis, right next to the Roman gymnasium, where the Romans would exercise in the nude before going under the columns uh, to sleep together. Both of which should have been highly offensive to the Jews. But in Sardis, not a big deal. And you know, what's really strange about Sardis is that unlike most of the cities that we've looked at so far, 
where people who followed Jesus were persecuted. They were outcasts. They were poor. They were not allowed to trade in the marketplaces. They weren't allowed to hold jobs. They, they had to give up everything to follow Jesus. In Sardis, there's no evidence of Christians being persecuted. In fact, in Sardis, Christians were allowed to hold jobs, and archaeologists have even found a, a market stall in the marketplace of Sardis where there is a cross on the wall of the market stall, meaning a Christian was allowed to trade in the marketplace, which should have been forbidden in the Roman Empire at that time. And it's strange, because under Roman law, Christians should have been outcasts. But in Sardis, well, they're, they're accepted which never happened unless you stopped saying that your God was greater than their gods. If you say your God is the only God, the most powerful God, well, Rome was going to persecute you. They were going to crush you. They were going to destroy you. But if you say, well, my God is just one among many, and he's not as powerful as the gods of Rome, well, okay, that's fine. That's fine. We'll accept you. So what we see here in Sardis is a church that is alive. They're big. They have a lot of members. They look really good, and they're not being persecuted. But Jesus says, you're dead. You're dead. And all of this is really just to say that based on the context and the archaeological evidence, scholars believe that what happened to the church in Sardis was that they had given up on their first love. They, they had, in an effort to get along with everyone, to have peace, to have prosperity, to have money, to have comfort, to, have, to, to live a life free of persecution, the church had abandoned the core teachings of Jesus. They had abandoned the gospel of Jesus. They had abandoned the whole truth and settled for a partial truth. They had reduced Jesus to just being one God among many. They had bailed on the message that Jesus was the only way to God and and they had missed their point, the point. The, their commitment to Jesus was one of convenience. They took the parts of the gospel that they liked and that wouldn't get them persecuted and kept those, but the parts that they didn't like and would get them persecuted, they just kind of pushed aside. And they were missing the point because, you see, Jesus is not interested in being one of many. He didn't come to earth to collaborate with the other world religions. He... He did not die simply so he could be a convenient part of your life. No, Jesus came and he died to conquer sin, to conquer the enemy, to, to raise us to life, to give us salvation and hope, to conquer the pagan religions and to deliver a new way of life. You see, Jesus is not interested in being a part of your convenient traditions. He wants to be a part of your life. He wants to change you, to make you more like him. And he says to the church in Sardis, remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. Return to the message of the gospel of Jesus. Return to the whole truth or else. You know, I think sometimes it's easy for us to get caught up in the same mindset as the believers of Sardis. To just try and get along with everyone, to say, well, you can have your beliefs and I'll have mine. And I'm not saying that it's wrong, because 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells us that it is to peace that we have been called. We're not called to go out and pick a fight with somebody because they disagree with us on some little point. But what's wrong is when we begin to compromise the message of Jesus because it's politically incorrect 
or because it's inconvenient or because it's offensive. See, in the name of loving people, other Christians and churches have started to say things like, oh, well, sin doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you live. Just do whatever you want. Jesus will forgive you. Well, that's true. Jesus will forgive you. But the truth of the matter is that that's just a partial gospel. Jesus is calling us to a new life. You are a new creation. He doesn't want us to remain in the filth that we were in before we found him. He wants to call us to something better. That kind of gospel is ignoring the truth of what Romans 6, 3, or 6, um, 1 to 3 says. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound all the more? By no means. How can you who have died to sin go on living in it? It's a partial gospel. In the name of being politically correct, some Christians and churches have started to say, well, Jesus is just one way to God. Love wins in the end. Everyone will go to heaven. Okay. But that's not the gospel. Because in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 3, 18, those who believe in me are not condemned, but whoever does not believe in me stands condemned already, for they do not believe in the name of the only Son of God. People want, we Christians want to fit into culture so badly that we are willing to change the message of the gospel just to be more accepting, to be more politically correct, to be non-offensive. And like Sardis, we just want to get along. But, but, you know, Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, we were never meant to let culture dictate how we believe or what we believe or what we think. We're not supposed to let culture tell us what parts of the gospel we can believe, what we can preach. See, if you change the message of the gospel to fit the culture around you, you begin to miss what God is doing. Miss what he's doing around you and what he wants to do in you. And those Christians and those churches, well, they may be popular. They may have a lot of followers on social media. They may have large churches, but Jesus looks at them and he says, you're dead. See, the point of Christianity is about having a relationship with God. And the point of church is gathering in community to worship God together. But then Jesus issues his final words, words of hope, and he says this. He says, Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. In that moment, Jesus is saying there's hope for revival. Because there's still a few believers among you who are pure. Still a few believers among you who have not given up, who have not lost the whole truth. And he says, if you conquer... You will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life, which is a reference to the practice of Rome where they would try to keep records of everyone living in the city. And if someone unimportant died, well, they would just blot them out. Jesus is saying, even if you die, I will never blot you out. You are so important to me that I will never give you up. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You see, what's happening here is Jesus is giving a glimpse 
of the glory that the people in Sardis, the Christians in Sardis will receive if they just wake up and return. In this moment, he's actually promising them the conqueror's reward. Just like in Roman culture at the time, whenever somebody conquered a city or won in the games, or the conquerors and the victors, they would hold these massive processions where the conqueror or the victor was dressed in white robes and their entire procession was dressed in white robes. Jesus is promising the church in this moment a great victory procession. One where he is the victor, where he is walking in glory, and where those who remain in him will be dressed in white, which means unstained by the world. He's promising that if we remain in him, we will have fellowship with him, we'll have relationship with him, we will share in his glory, and he will never forget us. Because you see, here's the deal of what Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis it's, it's really, really simple. He's saying, if you continue to take my message, if you continue to tell a partial truth because it's convenient, just like your city missed the enemies coming against them time and time again, I will come against you and judge you. But if you come back, if you come back, if you conquer, if you remember what you first received and heard, your life will look different. You will lose friends, you'll lose prestige, you'll lose fame, you'll lose money, you probably won't be able to trade in the marketplace, you'll probably be in poverty, you'll probably lose everything, but you will gain a far greater reward. And you know, I think this is a very similar message to what Jesus is saying to us today. See, are we willing to take a stand, to believe in the gospel, to believe that Jesus is the only way to God, that Jesus died for our sins, that we can live a new life, to believe that, that God is calling us to something greater, that he just didn't just die so that we could go to heaven one day, but he died so that he could change us and he could change the world through us? Or do we want to compromise the message because it's, it's inconvenient? See, we were never called to fit into culture but to be culture changers. I heard one pastor put it this way. He said, we were never meant to be thermometers gauging the temperature of culture around us, but to be thermostats changing the atmosphere around us. We are called to be members of the kingdom of God, changing culture wherever we go, spreading the love, hope, joy, and peace of Jesus wherever we go in whatever situation we find ourselves in. But to do that... We can't compromise the message. Even if it means losing everything, even if it means looking bad, we can't compromise the message if we want to spread Jesus. So let me get, I want to get you guys to stand and just want to pray over us all. Father God, I just pray over all of us here, Lord that we will be people who choose to trust in you no matter what. That we will be people who put our faith in you, no matter the cost, no matter the price. That we won't allow culture or the world to tell us what we need to change because it's inconvenient or offensive to someone, God, but that we will cling to your truth, to the whole truth of who you are and your love for us and what you did for us, God. 
that we will not be content living where we are, but that we will constantly be transformed into your image, God, becoming more and more like you. God, I pray that you will move in our hearts. Convict us of your word, Lord. Let us hold fast to what you say, no matter what.